I'll warn you, this is a set-up sermon. This one sets up next week, which is John chapter 11. This one's about boxes. See, I just filled this up. i got to pick it back up here. Let me tell you a story, though. Keep a straight face if you're not on to what I'm talking about, okay? Years ago, before I, I was a Christian, there was a particular verse in the Bible that drove me crazy. I mean crazy. God helps those who help themselves. I thought it was the stupidest thing, and I couldn't understand why people would believe it. God helps those who help themselves. All that saying is whatever you do, God takes credit for it. What kind of nonsense is that? So why would you actually believe some, some ridiculous teaching? So if you do something successful or, or you do something well, well, God gets credit because God helps those who help themselves. So I'd ask people who were Christians, um, I guess some quote, some real Christians, what do you do with this verse? How do you respond to, to this? God helps those who help themselves. And I would hear things like this. Well, God made everything. God made everyone. So we're unable to do anything on our own. So if we help ourselves, we have to give glory to God because he empowered us to take care of ourselves. I'm like, seriously, this is ridiculous. And I, and I would beat on this verse, and I refuse to believe in God. One day, many years later, I met this guy. What do you do in a verse? God helps those who help themselves. He looked at me with this little smile like, you arrogant fool, you don't know who you're up against. He said, that verse really bothers you, doesn't it? Yeah, that verse bothers me horribly, and it bothers me that people like you believe this nonsense when stuff like that is in it. He said, is it? Yeah, it's in there. Where? Well, I, I, don't, I don't have a chapter verse reference, but everybody knows it's in the Bible. Really? You, you aren't, why don't you find it and come back in a couple days and we'll talk about it or we can put it in context? Well, well, why don't you just show me where it is? You know the Bible. Okay. It comes from Benjamin Franklin. It's not in the Bible. Well, what are you talking about? Because, yeah, I think it's nonsense, too. Could you imagine God helps those who help themselves? It's actually completely contradictory to what the Bible teaches. What are you talking about? Not in the Bible, he says. Have you read it? I read parts of it. You read the whole thing? Well, not the whole thing, but it's really not in there. No, it's really not in there. And what happened was I realized that I had created a box that I put God in, and because I didn't like the box, or God didn't fit in my box, I wasn't going to believe in him. How sad that I spent all those years having a problem with God helps those who help themselves when it's not even in there. How sad that there weren't people out there who could say to me, it's not in the Bible. You know why they couldn't say it's in the Bible? I didn't know. The Bible says we're to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have. I heard a lot of defenses for a verse that wasn't in the Bible that was assumed to be in it. Today I want to talk about boxes. I want to talk about boxes that we set up as Christians. I want to talk about boxes that non-Christians set up based on assumptions and expectations. We're going to look at John chapter 10, verse 22 uh, to 42, and there's going to be a little bit of a different style of sermon. It's going to be half apologetic, half exegetical, and if you don't know what either term means, I am doing my job. Apologetic just means it comes from a uh, word apologia, dealing with the defense for the faith. I'm not saying you're sorry. Nobody's apologizing for being a Christian. We're defending it. And the second, exegetical, exit, take out what the Bible has to say. We're going to look at what it says and take it out and apply it to our lives. So we're going to start. This Bible has more pieces of paper. In it. We're going to start in John chapter 10. We're going to read the text and we're going to start unpacking it as we look at boxes. John 10 verse 22. Remember last week. We had the eight wild shepherds. 
we have a, a little bit of a gap in time, which we'll talk more about with the second box here. But it says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am doing the works, I'm sorry, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Ready for box one? One of the primary objections I hear about Jesus, I imagine you've heard it too, Jesus never claimed to be God. You ever hear that? Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be God. What do you do when you hear that? How do you respond? Does Jesus ever actually claim to be God? Does he ever say, my name's Jesus Christ, Joseph and Mary are my mom, and well, Joseph's not my dad, God's my dad, but he was my earthly dad, and I am God. Does he ever say that? Don't you kind of want to know? Here's the first problem. People will say, Jesus never claims to be God, and if we're honest, 99% of us aren't quite sure. We know he's God, right? But we can't really defend it or support it scripturally. Kind of like the, the fools that come along and say, God helps those who help themselves. And we're like, I don't think it says that, but I'm not 100% sure. And if they can show me that verse, I'm up the creek. I want to do this apologetic side because I want to, I want to give you a little bit of a little bit of ammunition. All right? Biblical ammunition. Jesus very clearly claims to be God. And he does it in a variety of ways. And I want to show you what's going on here. Jesus comes in, in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. He's speaking to Jews. When Jews hear that, they're going to think Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. I and the Father are one. Jesus isn't mincing words here. He's saying, you want to know if I'm the Christ? I'm God. Now, an astute uh, objector to the faith at this point is going to say, well, now, wait a minute, fancy pants. It says, I and the Father are one. He's not saying I'm God. He's saying that, you know, we have similarities. We're, we're one in spirit. We, we agree on everything. Um, but he's not saying that he's really God. Watch what happens in the text here. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why? Because he was blaspheming. He was claiming to be God. 
Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You just say something. People take it as you saying you're God. They know Leviticus. They know they got to stone you. Might you go ahead and shout out, Ooh, hold on, hold on. I think you misunderstood what I was saying. I'm not going to get stoned for a misunderstanding. I said I and the Father are one, but I didn't mean I was God. It's not what I was saying. Wouldn't that make sense when people have stone in hand and they're ready to kill you for it? So Jesus says that, right? Jesus takes it a step further as you read through, and you get to verse 38, and he says, The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. The objection that Jesus never claimed to be God is about as equally uh, valid as saying that Jesus was an alligator. Well, the Bible never says anywhere that Jesus wasn't an alligator. Is there a verse that says Jesus Christ was not an alligator? Well, of course there's not a verse that says he wasn't an alligator, because we know he wasn't an alligator. He was God become man, right? Jesus claims extraordinarily clearly that he was God. I'll talk in a minute about why he answered their question in a seemingly vague way. But you will, as you have more conversations with people about Jesus, you will come across objectors who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. You don't have to get defensive or angry with them. They're just ignorant people like I used to be, and I guess like I am to an extent still, right? We've got to take them into God's Word. We've got to tell them what it says. And we bring them to a verse like this in John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. Jesus is clearly claiming to be God. And they say, well, no, that's not what it says. And then we know what the rest of the text says. Why am I talking about this? Well, I didn't do a lot of preparation this week, and I'm, I'm burning time. We had a conversation before I started. We do this. Got about five minutes, and we no. I'm doing this because Jesus makes some outlandishly severe claims, doesn't he? Jesus claims... To be God. Jesus claims that no one can go to heaven except through him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes some severe claims. As you read through the epistles, Paul is saying that just as sin came through one man, so salvation comes through one man. What he's saying is Adam and Eve have to be literal people that lived in a literal place called the Garden of Eden, or the work of Christ means nothing. Why do I say that? Because here's the deal. If Jesus wasn't really God, there is no reason for us to be here. If Jesus wasn't really exactly who he said he was, if he isn't the only way to heaven, if he isn't the only one who can pay the price for our sins, this is just a giant sham, and I'm no better than the guy driving the May 21 truck. And you're no better than the people in the truck, too, because you're believing this sham. But I can promise you it's no sham. I can promise you that it's a provable fact. It's a knowable fact. It's an examinable fact that Jesus Christ is in fact God in the flesh. And that's what we're seeing here. And that's what we go out into the world and proclaim. But we need to have a basis upon which to proclaim it. It happens to be true, but let's not assume it's true because Pastor John said so. Let's know it's true because God says so through his word and we can know this is in fact his word. Let me take a sidestep for you a sec. Good pick on song, by the way. fit in perfectly. Is there just one God? Or is there like God that we worship... And then other gods or lesser gods who go under him. So like, when people pray to, you know, in India some people worship cows, right? Are they like minor deities? So like you have God the Father, like big God. And the other gods are subject to him. And What if someone says that to you? Well, you know, you believe in your God, I believe in my God. What does the Bible say about that? Does the Bible say there's just one God? Very clearly it does. Probably a thousand passages. Um, I'll give you a couple, and then we're going to get to the, to the meat of this thing. But One of those books that is uh, highly neglected is the book of Isaiah. I'll be honest with you, 
I neglect that book severely. It's kind of heavy reading. I, I like stories. I like things that move quickly. And just recently I was going through the book of Isaiah and, and as I finished I thought, it's a pretty awesome book. Like, it's pretty cool that goes in there and how it ties into to Paul's writings in particular and to what's going on in the life of Christ. But look at Isaiah 43.10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor after me shall, nor, nor shall there be any after me. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And two verses later, fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And, is, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Here's the deal. The people that believe May 21st was the end of the world, they're worshiping something about the equivalent power of that box. People who worship anything other than Christ, be it the stuff in it, a false god from their imagination, or another person, it has about as much power as a box. It has nothing. It's an innate, powerless object. You and I worship the Most High God. He is a powerful God. He can do amazing things, but sometimes, and here we transition into part two. You ready for this? Sometimes we make boxes that we try to keep God in, and it prevents God from using us powerfully. Watch this. Back to John 10. The passage starts by saying, as I get there, At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Casual reader here goes right over that, and it means nothing, okay? Let's keep going. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Why did John put that in there? Thanks for asking. Do you know what the Feast of Dedication is? You ever hear of Hanukkah? Hanukkah. You know what Hanukkah is? About 160 years before Jesus' time, there, there was an invasion of Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes took it over, and tens of thousands of Jews were killed in horrendous ways. Tens of thousands more were sold into slavery, and the temple was desecrated. Then this guy came along, Judah Maccabee. And as a Jewish kid, we had some fancy songs. Judah Maccabee thought, sought to set the people free. Oh, it was good songs. Well, Judah Maccabee was a military, uh, military hero, and he came in and, and he busted up the people. He kicked them out, and then they rededicated the temple. They, they cleansed it, they, they got all the junk out of it, and they got it ready again to, to be ceremonially pure to worship God. One little problem, they had a problem with oil to keep the eternal flame burning. And a miracle took place whereby they had one day's worth of oil and it burned for eight days. And that's why you have eight lights on Hanukkah. So what's he talking about? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple. What happened was the Jews expected the Messiah would be a greater Judah Maccabee. When he came, he would kick the Romans out and he would establish God's kingdom on earth, a peaceful kingdom dealing with evil. Now, they were right to an extent, but that's Jesus' second coming. In Jesus' first coming, they were expecting a greater Judah Maccabee. They wanted a military hero, a conquering Messiah to come in and, and cleanse everybody out, to get, rid of, to get rid of evil, to kick the Romans out, and to establish true worship in the temple. So they say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. What they're really saying is, are you the greater Judah Maccabee? You fit our Messiah box? Jesus doesn't say, I'm the Messiah. You remember in uh, John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, the guy gets kicked out of the temple. 
he comes up to Jesus, and, and Jesus uh, says to him, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir? Jesus says, uh, You've seen him, and it's I who am speaking to you. I'm the Messiah. Remember the lady at the well, the adulterous woman? She gives out uh, water to Jesus, and he's saying, or she says, Well, the Messiah, when he comes, he'll explain all this stuff to us. And Jesus looks smack dab at her and says, That's me. I'm the Messiah. So when the Jewish authorities ask him, so tell us, are, are you he? Are you the Messiah? Why doesn't he just say, darn right I'm the Messiah? He doesn't do that, does he? Because what happens is they're asking, do you fit our box? And the term Messiah has a, a huge misunderstanding because of boxes they created. Sometimes I can be contrary just because. Other times I'm contrary with good reason, I think. People ask me if I'm a Christian. I rarely answer that question. You know why? What's a Christian? It's a member of Andy's family. What's a Christian? How do you identify that? I hear people all over the place tell me they're Christian. They'll say, well, tell me about it. What does that mean? Well, you know, I grew up in the church. Okay, so Christian, identifying a Christian. Grew up in church. Other people, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? You believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, no, he's not the only way to heaven, but he was a good teacher. Okay, like Jesus' teachings. And I put parentheses, some of them. How do you identify a Christian? So people say to me, are you a Christian? Do you fit the box that we have created of what a Christian is? And I will typically say, well, I don't know what you mean by Christian, but I do love Jesus, and I'm a follower of Christ, if that's what you mean. Creates an interesting conversation quite often, or you get the crazy look. But Jesus wasn't going to answer their question directly because they wanted him in a box. Think about who created the greater Judah Maccabee Messiah box. Were these just loony bins running around town? These were Jewish authorities. These were people who were supposed to know God's word well, and many of whom did. These were people who dedicated their lives to upholding the teachings of God and living it out. Okay? And somehow, they said... See, I brought the wrong Bible here. It says somewhere in here, in chapter 10, you being, you being a man, make yourself God. You see the word order mess up there? The Jews say to Jesus, you being a man, make yourself God. The reality is they should have said, you being God, made yourself man. These were people who were supposedly waiting for the Messiah to come God, and the flesh showed up and they picked up stones to kill him. You understand how crazy that is? So the question has to be turned back towards us to look at our lives. What happened and how do we prevent that in our lives? As people who love Jesus, how do we keep boxes out of the place so we can see truth for what it really is? Here's what I think happened with the Jewish authorities. Here's what I know happened. Tradition took the place of Scripture. False assumptions took the place of truth. Personal desires took the place of God's desires. Does that ever happen to us? Do you ever put God in a box or try to, try to put him in a box? Let's take a specific view of it. Do you ever put God's will in a box? I ask you this question. I'm on a roll this week, and this has nothing to do with anybody here. It has primarily to do with me. Um, but you're going to have to hear it. When was the last time you had a meaningful conversation with someone about Jesus? I don't mean the like, yeah, I go to church type of conversation. I mean like a, a meaningful conversation about who Jesus is and how much he loves him. The reality for most people is, it's been a little bit of a longer time than probably should be, right? Why is that? Is that because God doesn't desire for us to have those conversations? 
Or could it possibly be because we've created boxes which prevent those conversations from taking place? Let me give you a couple examples of boxes. These are personal examples. Maybe you can apply them to your life. This person would never be able to come to faith. You ever look at someone, make a box of what God can and can't do, and say, yep, that one doesn't fit the box, can't ever come to faith. I'll be stuck in this situation forever. Life's never going to get better. Life's never going to change. This is just it, and I'm destined to failure. Yep, too bad, God. We got that in the box. I can't believe that God would let this happen if God is really who he claimed to be. Tsunamis, earthquakes, floods, make that box. I can't share my faith effectively. I just, I can't. I'm not equipped to do it. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. Do we possibly ignore the fact that Jesus says, uh, trust me, I'll empower you, I'll speak through you? God really wants me to do this, which is based completely on an assumption, because I don't know what the Bible says about it, but I know it's what he wants because it fits my box. Now that person there, they would never come to our church for A, B, C, D, E, F, or G reason. God couldn't do it. See where I'm going with this? I think in our lives that we create, I create, I'm assuming you create, boxes. And within those boxes, we try to fit God's will. And because we do that, we prevent God from using us as powerfully as he so might desire. And here's what struck me. May 21st came along, and it's all over the news, and some people laugh at it, and some people cry about it, and some people are confused about it, and Lord knows there are millions of people that have, that have a burning desire to understand what is really true. And what's happened is we've become a society of people who can't think independently. You realize that. When you watch sitcoms, here's a pet peeve of mine, do you know you laugh when you're told to laugh at sitcoms? You know the canned laughter that comes in the background? And you laugh when the canned laughter comes on. I do it too. When I found out that we are trained like dogs to laugh at canned laughter, it really bothered me and I have trouble watching sitcoms now because they're saying, laugh here. Ha, 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 ha. When we go through school, we're told what to believe. We're not told to think about things. We're not told to examine things. We're told what to believe and we regurgitate those facts because it's what we're told is true. That gets a little dangerous when you get into society that's taught God is not really who God claims to be. Surely Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. That's extremely intolerant. And we know for a fact that it can't be true. And the world goes out and regurgitates it. We're not immune to this. What we do is we take sin, pride, arrogance, and ignorance and create boxes out of it. And within those boxes, we try to create God's will. So we have a world that believes lies that doesn't know where to go for truth, and people who know the truth but create boxes, which prevents God from working through us in many respects, and we have huge messes. Here's what struck me. Lord knows I'm not looking for a large numerical church. If God so desires it, it's got to be God bringing it. You know, if we're, if we're packing hundreds, it's going to be a lot of headache for a lot of us. Um, so it's got to be from God. But you and I have lots of friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors who don't know Jesus. And I don't know many places where they can go to get answers. I know a lot of places they can go to be entertained. I know a lot of places they could go to be, um, to, to have their, their ego stroked. I know a lot of places they can go to have fun. But I also know that we're a society that is literally entertaining ourselves to death. We don't have the ability to slow down and think through the why. We'll say things like, that person would never come to faith, but we don't stop and say, why do I say that? Is that what God would say? 
I have a conversation with my neighbor about disciplining kids and my head races so badly that I can't quiet it down enough for God to say, hey John, listen to me here. Look what you got going on. As we do that, I think we will be floored by what God would do through us. Think about how many people you know who don't know Jesus. And think about if God could use you to bring them to faith. Think about how God might use you to bring them to faith. Will he? I can't guarantee it. Could he? Absolutely, you bet. When you walk into any situation, you need to go into the situation by removing the boxes of assumption, of arrogance, sin, and pride, and saying, God, you do what you desire and use me, your servant. Does God work in expected ways? God's a God of expect. You can expect to know who God is. God's unchangeable. But does God work in expected ways? Next week, we're going to talk about a dead, dead man named Lazarus. Four days in the tomb, and his best friend Jesus is just hanging out, ignoring it. Oh yeah, Lazarus is sick. He's going to die. Let's hang out for four more days. Jesus, you could have stopped this. Yeah, I could have. What's wrong with you? Oh, there's nothing wrong with me, but I don't fit in your little box, do I? God says to uh, Moses, Hey Moses, you're 80 years old, left you in the desert 40 years now. Most like, come on, 40 years. We couldn't have done this 39 ago before I had ulcers, went bald, and hate sheep. God's like, no, because that didn't fit your little box, did it, of what you thought I would do. Joshua hits Jericho. Oh, here's how we do it. No, no, Joshua, march. Quietly. Yell. Play music. Doesn't fit the box, does it? We often try to grow God's kingdom in boxes. Here's how you do it. You go to a conference, they give you the supplies to put in the box, you unpack your box in front of people, shazam, it works! Jericho fell because that's how God told Joshua to do it. You go march around a, a city today and blow some trumpets, I don't suspect it's going to fall down because it wasn't the marching and the playing to drop the walls. It was obedience to God. You can't contain God in a box. You can't prepackage how God works. You can't explain a lot of what He does because God happens to say, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. That's Isaiah 55, verse 8. Here's our job. We're setting up for next week. The first thing that we need to do, this is, this is like time 532. Ready? We need to know what God's Word says. Here's what's so hard. Here's something I struggle with. It's taken me a lot of years to really treat this for what it is, to understand the benefit of obeying God with it and seeing what He does through it in just little bits. Sometimes I wish that I could kind of fast forward 50 years and then rewind and have a substantially mature faith and, and speak to you from that position as opposed to someone who's kind of learning on the journey along with you. For many years, when I first came to faith, I had a genuine passion to read God's Word. I just, I loved it. I would get up and I would do it and I couldn't get enough of it. And then as I went off to seminary, it became a little bit more of an intellectual exercise. That's not always a good thing. I could put facts in my head. I could win a Bible trivia contest. But then I realized, no, what this Word is, think about this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke about, spoke about it this way. He said the Scripture should be taken, understood as, God literally speaking directly to you. Understand that. So when you sit down and you read the Gospel of John, realize this, that God had these words recorded directly from Him to communicate in part directly to you for a perfect purpose. 
It's hard to see it as boring when you realize that God divinely gave this word for you and you and you and you and you and me for a perfect purpose. And as we feast on his word, which is what he commands us to, so understand to not feast on it is a little bit of a problem called sin. We'll kind of skip that over for a bit. As we feast on it, as he commands us to, we will see him start to do amazing things, but perhaps we make a box that says, I just don't have time. I just can't understand it. It just makes no sense to me. I just don't like it. Drop the box. Tell God. Be honest with him. God, the way life's set up right now, I don't have time. I don't like it. It bores me. I don't know how to read it. Okay? I'll give you a good starting point. Anywhere. Genesis 1, John 1. You don't have to read the whole thing in a year. Psalm 1. You can read it over 15 years. But come before this thing each day and understand what it has to say, but come with it of the mindset that God will speak to you for a perfect purpose, and little by little you'll see how it works. But you can't just read it man-powered, you've got to read it God-powered. And here's the hard thing. This is a book inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it can only effectively be read through the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to pray before you get in front of God's Word and say, God, please reveal the, the hidden wonders of your Word to me. Please give me eyes to see and ears to hear what you desire to communicate. And it takes time. Yeah. You ever go on a diet? They don't just happen like that. You ever, you ever start a workout routine, like your P90X? If they made a P9, P1X, you know, like in one day you will go from flab to fit. Everybody would buy that sucker up. No? You know, they, they got seven-minute abs and seven-minute thighs, and everybody's looking, you know, they did come out with a six-minute abs. I don't know if you noticed that. When they get it down to the 20-second abs, they do have the electric belts you can just put on, so you can just walk around with doing nothing. We have lost the ability to slow down and think of important matters, to contemplate, to meditate, to ponder, to read. How many people read nowadays? And what's happened is because we've lost that ability, we assume it can't be regained. Well, it can, but it's going to take work. P90X, 90 days. It's hard. I've heard. I've never done it. I love working out. I love working out, so I keep doing it. But it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of discipline to stay focused on it. Really, God's Word is no different. We need to cultivate an attitude that understands that God knows what's best, that God commands us to do it, and trust that if he commands us to do it, he'll enable us to do it, and there's a perfect reason for it. Because as we do that, we're going to be able to see circumstances through the eyes of God, rather than God through the eyes of circumstances. As next week comes up with Lazarus, people looked through Lazarus and said, how could Jesus be good if he could have healed this guy and didn't do it? They're seeing Jesus through the eyes of the circumstance. Turn it around and look through the eyes of Jesus and it looks a whole lot different. I walked outside for the conversation yesterday. I wasn't looking at the conversation through the eyes of God with my neighbor. I was looking at it through the eyes of, of sin, uh, through the eyes of arrogance and edifying myself to a place I shouldn't be sitting in. Let me promote my agenda. Let me build a relationship for my purposes. Let me explain what a great parent I am. Woo! Rather than, God, what is your purpose here? And little by little, as I can quiet my mind, and sit before God's word for five minutes, it becomes 10. And 10 becomes 20. And then one day you could be a nerdy freak like me and get up and read God's word for an hour in the morning and then go, oh darn, it's over. My time's up. Because it's pretty cool when you feel the reality of God speaking to you through his word and convicting you and breaking down boxes that you've established and beginning to work through you in ways that you couldn't expect. 
And what we need to do last is take our expectations out, break down our boxes of sin, ignorance, and arrogance, and see what God does. Friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, all those people we come in contact with. Could God bring any and every one of them to faith? Absolutely. Will he? I don't know. But I would hate to make a box and prevent him from using me for that purpose. Does it mean God can't work around my box? Oh, God can work around my box. Will he? I'm not quite sure. I don't want to figure that one out. But what I do want to do is use my life to glorify God. And to do that, I have to take boxes of assumption down. I need to let God be who God is and his will be what his will is, not what I expect it to be. Now, next week, we're going to talk about Lazarus. As we go throughout Scripture, we need to pay very close attention to the fact that one of the greatest problems people have with knowing who God is and being used by God mightily is that they create a box around him. You will see it all the time. Paul came to faith on the road to Damascus. God sent Ananias to go and pray for him and remove the scales from his eyes. And you know what Ananias said? God, do you know who this guy is? As if God forgot. Ananias had a box that said, if I go there, I'm going to die. Dropped a box because God said go. And if in fact you do die and God sent you, it's okay because God knows what he's doing. For us to be willing and able to drop those boxes, we really got to know who God is. We really have to know that he's trustable, that he loves us, that he will care for us perfectly, that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us, and that we could be vulnerable enough to drop the box and let God see us for who we really are, which he can do through the box. But more importantly, we begin to see God for who he really is. At that, time, in the, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's a great opportunity, isn't it, for him to do something crazy? Like fire coming up out of the floor. He like levitates a little bit and just does some crazy stuff. And people are like, wow. He doesn't do that. Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I'll wrap it up right here. You ever hear the question, can somebody lose their faith? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's pretty darn clear. If you truly love Jesus and you are, you are born a new Christian, God wraps his hand around you and you ain't going nowhere. You can't lose your faith. You may come across people who say, oh, I'm a Christian, but there's no fruit in their lives. They no longer believe in Jesus. They never came to faith in the first place. But think of the security. When you love Jesus and you put your faith in him and God, you, you ever see a kid crossing the street with their dad and they, they wrap their hand? There are two ways to do it. The kid can hold the dad's fingers. But when you go across a busy street and you're a good dad, you don't go that way. You wrap your hand around the kid's hand. The kid's not hanging on to you. You're hanging on to the kid and he's not going anywhere. Faith in Christ is not us hanging on to God hoping that life doesn't pull us off. It's God hanging on to us and that's a pretty darn awesome thing because we're not going anywhere. Here's what our job is. Here's why he doesn't lift us up to heaven, but he leaves us down here. He's called us to go out into the world and proclaim the truth of Christ. He's called us to go out into the world and not condemn people. That's not why Jesus came, not to tell people how horrible they are and how God hates X, Y, and Z people. 
We're called to go out into the world and tell, tell them how much God loves them, how knowable he really is, how it's a provable, examinable, historical fact that not only did he claim to be God, but his signs proved that he was God. And that he will forgive them, he will love them, and he will hold the, his Father will hold them in his hands for eternity. How will they believe unless they hear the word of God, and how will they hear unless people preach? Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who are sent. Guess why we're left here? We're sent. You know what keeps us from going? Boxes. Little by little. This week, as we, as we kind of get ready for next week of John 11, take a little time. Where do you fit it in? I know, right? Take a little time. Quiet your mind. And ask God to convict you where you have boxes set up in your life. Boxes where you try to confine his will or his desire for your life. Ask him to slowly but deliberately break those down. And let's see what he does with that. Jesus is, uh, Jesus is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He doesn't make mistakes. If we trust him and believe that, we will do amazing things. There's one God. Jesus claims to be God. When we believe in him, he calls us friend. He's a good shepherd. He leads us, he guides us, he speaks to us, and he knows us. He's not going to give us more than we can handle. But he'll use us in amazing ways if we trust him. Let's pray. Father, I just I thank you for the fact that you are patient. I thank you for the fact that you are who you are. And I pray that you would, you would clear our eyes up. I know that we all struggle with a blurred vision to a degree. We know that, that you are God. We know that you are there. We know that you are real. We know that you are the only God. We know that Christ came and dwelt among us, died on the cross for our sins, and rose three days later. But I pray you would make these events more real to us, that you would make these real events that took place in history as clear as could be, that we would understand more fully who we are and who you are, that we would not seek to put your will under ours, but rather yours so far above ours it could not even be explained that we would understand that you saved us so that we could serve you. And as we serve you, we understand what we were fully made for and live life abundantly and no true joy. And God, I pray you would encourage us along the way. We live in a world that loves darkness. We don't go out and tell most people about how much Jesus loves them and have them thank us and hug us and follow us to church the next Sunday. Nor did the prophets of old live lives where people readily turn to you constantly. But yet there were times of, of great repentance when people saw the truth of who you were and fell before you. And God, I, I pray you would bring another of those times upon us. I pray you would invite us into your work. I pray you would send us out into the harvest field as we willingly come before you and say, Here I am, God, send me. And God, I pray we would see you work in amazing ways. I pray you would convict us of the boxes in our lives. I pray you would help us to be able to use our minds for your glory in the ways that you designed them to function. I pray you would just do mighty things in and through us, and we would have stories to tell for eternity that would just blow our minds. God, thank you for the fact that you forgive us for our shortcomings. Thank you for the fact that you empower us to do your will. And God, just thank you for the fact that you are God and we are not, and that you love us and forgive us and sustain us. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.